1: Ken Chapel, Good to see you. It's good to be back. Um, before we get into anything this morning, I do want to say thank you. Um, the Marshall family's been away on family vacation for the last two weeks, and um, without getting all sappy, I just want to say thank you. Um, it means a lot to our family that, that we can go, go away for a little while and just kind of be together and uh, to make some memories. You guys care for your pastors very well, and so I want to say thank you. Uh, for that, and it's good to know that, I mean, in all seriousness, like, we're at no shortage of good teaching pastors here. You got to hear from Pastor Matt and from Pastor Micah, and um, our leadership is just moving forward, and so I think I'm just going to go away more often. That works, works well for me. No, in all seriousness, we, uh, we were in Colorado for a couple of weeks, and uh, just super quick story. Um, I try my best to be a good dad, even though sometimes it means being very uncomfortable, so I'm not scared of many things, but one thing I'm terrified of is horses, and, uh, but Hannah, who is 11, loves horses because she's an 11-year-old girl, so we go horseback riding, right? And so um, I told the, the, the ranch that we kind of secured for the day, I said, hey, I don't want one named Turbo or Nitro or Thunder. Like, I want, like, Bessie or Petunia or Grandma. That'd be great. And so they gave me one called Buck. <laughs> And I was assured that was a proper name, not a verb, and I'm like, okay, but we got through it, and um, in all seriousness, thank you guys so much, we, are, we, uh, we missed you, we're glad to be home, we love you a lot. Um, so this morning, I want to I wanna put forward a question that I do think is going to become increasingly critical, increasingly controversial, and probably even increasingly conflictual in the coming years. And it's a question that I think at first blush seems really simple, it seems very basic, a little kindergarten-y, but I think it is actually deceptively complex. And it's a question that we must have an answer for, or I believe we run the risk of being unfaithful as a church. How's that for tightening the screws after two weeks off? Here's the question, who is Jesus? Seems like a basic question. But Here's why this question is so important. Um, This last week, I was kind of cruising through my social media news feeds, as I know a lot of you do, and I came across this post. If we could show this post on the screen, I want you guys to take a look at it. And um, This is something that really kind of got my attention. Lynn says, I'm really struggling with my faith. I'm so turned off by what I've seen in the church. I know I need to keep my eyes on Jesus. I'm not sure where I fit in the larger community of believers. I know God's holding on to me, though. I look forward to what I'll learn from all this. This is just out there on Twitter. And uh, Emmy Ann responds, I'm with you. No clue where to go for Christian community anymore. Let's leave that up there for a second. Um, Does that bother you? Okay, it bothers me. And, um, you know, I don't think it's too far, I, like, I, I, I'm not just bothered by it, I, I feel partly responsible for that in some way, and what bothers me most is there's, there's 76 likes on Lynn's post, 22 likes on Emmy's post, and there's a lot more of that out there than I think that we would even care to acknowledge some days. It's kind of heartbreaking to me. Not because they're missing Christianity, but because they're missing Christ. And in the confusing swirl of issues and ideologies, the chaos of opinions and suspicions, the most precious gift to the world, Jesus, somehow gets lost in the shuffle. But here's the rub. Providing clarity for people like Lynn and Emmy and maybe some of you, providing clarity for that. It isn't the job of universities and seminaries, it's not the job of academicians and theologians, it's not just the job of pastors and missionaries, it's the job of the church. You and me, us together, to provide a clear picture of Jesus for walking Well, this is week six of our 10-week summer teaching series through First John. We're more than halfway there. And if you're just joining us or so you need to blow the dust off of your Bible a little bit, here's where we are. John uh, is the, probably the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He's the only one to die a natural death, not a martyr's death. He has spent 15 years as a religious exile on the island of Patmos at the hand of the Roman emperor Domitian, city of Ephesus, where he had pastored a number of years before, and now over 90, with the heart of a tender, godly grandfather, he writes this church a letter with one crystal clear objective, and I don't know if you've caught it, but we've sort of co-opted it as like a subtitle for this series, that you may know. Know what? comes up over and over in this letter and it just perfectly embodies John's heart for this church that in a world of spiritual uncertainty you may know the source of truth that in a flurry of false teaching you may know the truth of the gospel that on an increasingly crowded stage of would-be saviors you may know the person of Jesus this is John's heartbeat and so here's where we're going this morning we're going to pick things right where we left off last week. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, or flip there, or you can watch on the screens behind me in a bit. And over the course of six short verses, you're going to feel this aging, burdened, bothered, but hopeful disciple put forward one all-important idea, and here it is. An out-of-focus world deserves a clear picture of Jesus. An out-of-focus world deserves a clear picture of Jesus. So here we go, 1 John 4. Let's just take a look right in verse 1. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. First word, what's he say? Beloved. We're going to get to the rest of this in just a second, but we've got to stop. the speed bump right here at the very beginning. Beloved. I want you to see how John addresses this church. He's used words like little children to call them, and he will in a minute say that. But right now he says, Beloved. This is John starting out and saying, look, we've got some tough stuff to talk about. We've got some hard truths that we're going to have to look at. But before we get to those things, I need you to know that I love you. You hear his heart? It's like a dad. You can hear him, like, put the kids on the couch and just be like, look, hey, eye contact. Before we do anything else, I want you to know that I am for you. I'm with you love you. We're going to talk about some stuff that's going to be a little tough, but I love you. Don't forget that. So what's he have to say? Let's continue. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, there he tightens the lens a little bit. You are from God and you've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Praise God for that statement, right? They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we'll get to the spooky stuff in just a minute. But for now, I want to see what he's saying first, right out of the gate in verse 1. Verse 1 functions like a banner that's over this entire text. And for the grammatically inclined among you, you already saw this. There's three things. There's a negative command, so a prohibition, something he wants us to not do. Then there's a positive command, something he wants us to do. And then there's a purpose clause, a reason why John is so worked up. So first, the negative command. What's he say? Right out of the gate, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Did you see it there? Don't believe every spirit. Have you ever seen something or someone that looks really spiritual but is kind of a phony? Something that's really outwardly very impressive, but hollow. Like, outwardly very compelling, just not very genuine. They've got a following, but there's something that's just kind of like off. That's what John's talking about here. This is a big problem in the ancient world, and it's a big problem in our world today. Ephesus is a city of spiritual entrepreneurs who are seeking spiritual influence. And all you needed was a street corner, a relevant topic telling agenda and a depth of eloquence and you've got This last year has shown us how many of us arrive at the conclusions we do based on our emotions, based on what we want to be true, or based on what seems to be the path of least resistance. This is deep inside of us as humans, right? We have a hunch that something might be right, and then we look for something that affirms that belief, and then so it deepens it like a rut, and then now our pride won't let us escape from that rut, and our thinking becomes this. John's word for us essentially boils down to this. Don't believe everything you hear. Be suspicious of your own gullibility. If you had to contextualize it, don't be so quick to copy, paste, share, and send, and repost. (laughs) Ancient Ephesian street corners are today's social media feeds. First century speeches are today's blog posts. And spiritual entrepreneurs are no different than everything else that you do. Don't believe everything you hear, John is saying. What am I supposed to do then, John? Just bury my head in the sand? I thought we were supposed to seek truth and be discerning, just like avoid it. Is that what I'm supposed to do? No. John gives us an alternative. Here's his answer. It's the positive command that shows up. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but what? Test the spirits. So now he's giving you something to do. You want to know what truth is? You can find it. Test the spirits. Elsewhere in the New Testament, that verb test is translated as examine or interpret or discern. It takes hard work. There's nothing nostalgic, no spiritual sentimentality here. There's a healthy degree of suspicion, close examination. It's work. It's like that sophomore biology class where you put that slide under the microscope, and you like get in there and you dial it in until that lens is really, really focused, and then it pops, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I could see that. All of a sudden, it takes work to dial all this in. Only we're not looking at an amoeba. What are we looking at? Spiritual truth. Who is Jesus? Well, why is this so important? Don't believe everything you hear, but test the spirits. Why? And then John's purpose clause emerges where he says, For... That's your clue to purpose for or because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is John saying, look, a lot of people are going to tell you a lot of things for a lot of reasons and you're going to have a lot of reactions. And your long-term spiritual health depends on your ability to examine what they're saying and hold it up to actual, verifiable Biblical truth. And I love how John is so honest here, right? He just says, look, there's no sugarcoating here. There's no, like, minimizing, no downplaying. He's like, look, this is already at work in our world. They're already out there. That's actually, like, strangely comforting, isn't it? Like, he's not trying to make it easy on us. He's just going, look, yeah, there's a lie, lots of them out in our world and people are leveraging their spiritual authority trying to get you to buy a lie primarily about Jesus. Watch for it. and Don't buy it. So it kind of begs the question, right? Can you see it? Could you recognize a lie? Can you hold it up to truth and refute it? Well, here's where what I imagine John's readers feel, and here's what I feel when I read that, because there's something that comes up in me where I go, well, how do I know? John, where, where is the standard? What's the litmus test for truth, John? How do I know in this world? Our world is like one of those carnival cash machines. You ever see those things? Like, you step into it, and there's like, you know, hundreds of dollars in there, and then they turn the blower on, and everyone's just kind of going like this, like trying to grab onto something, and you walk out with like a dollar, <laughs> That's what our world feels like, doesn't it? And so John goes, So he wants to clarify some things because he's a good pastor. He provides the church with a simple, profound, beautiful litmus test. How do you know spiritual truth? Verse 2, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that doesn't is not from God. And right there, with the microscope dialed in, the focus perfectly set, his eye looking through it as intensely as he can, John says, come here, this, this is what I want you to see. An out-of-focus world needs a clear picture of Jesus. You guys know me, I'm, um, I'm a sucker for a good story. Whether it's a book, a movie, a song, whatever. Like, good characters, good plot line, I'm in, right? And so, um, one of the favorite things that we like to do to relax, just Mandy and I, is just to watch a good movie together. You're probably the same way. You guys remember when, like, Netflix first came on, by the way? You're like, I don't have to go to Blockbuster? Do you know, wait, raise your hand if you have no idea what Blockbuster is. (laughs) Okay, there's maybe, like, a few of you, okay? Like, Netflix, and you're like, what sorcery is this? I can just do this from my home, I don't have to go anywhere? Well, One of our favorite movies um, is this movie came out a little while ago. It's called Catch Me If You Can, and it stars uh, Leonardo DiCaprio as this con man, Frank Abagnale, and Tom Hanks as an FBI agent called Carl Hanratty. And if you know the story, Leonardo DiCaprio uses his wit and his cunning and his charm to basically put on an elaborate display where he convinces people that he is a doctor and he gets hired on at a hospital. He's a lawyer who actually oversees a case. He's a pilot who actually gets in a plane, flies, and this host of other identities that are completely fake. But he's a brilliant con man, and and Carl Hanratty, Tom Hanks, is like one step behind him the whole way, right? So I don't want to blow the ending for you, but there is this scene kind of toward the end where um, Carl and and, uh, Frank have become... This kind of good friends, they have this odd relationship together over the years, you know, and he does catch them, so sorry to blow it, but anyway. So there's this great scene at the, near the end where they're talking to each other through the phone at a federal penitentiary, and there's prison glass between them, and they're catching up on life, and they're doing small talk, just like you would with any friend. And um, so Frank says, how's work going? And Carl says, well, you know, we've got this really great counterfeiter, now, Frank's stock and trade, above everything else that he had done, was creating counterfeit currency and forging fake checks. So over the life of his journey as a con man, allegedly $2.5 million of fake checks, allegedly. And so Frank asked Carl, he says, well, is this guy any good? And Carl goes, well, you know, here, I got a I check. So he holds the check up to the glass. And almost unable to help himself, Frank starts diagnosing the discrepancies in the fake check, from the wrong font type to the watermarking, the off-cut margins. And so Carl's going, huh. Real checks look different, and Frank knows that they do. Frank can spot the lie so quickly Because he knows the truth so well. Sort of begs the question, if somebody held up a counterfeit Jesus to you, would you recognize him? Almost by instinct. If somebody held up spiritual falsehood to you, would you be able to go, Nah, that's not right, that's not right, this is not right, and here's why. Do you know Jesus so intimately, so deeply, that you could identify a counterfeit by instinct? An an out-of-focus world deserves a clear picture of Jesus. So, here's where we're going to go. For the theologically inclined among you, there's a branch of theology called Christology. And as you could probably determine, it's a study of Christ, a word about Christ. And there's books and books and books and books and books books written about Christology. Mountains of material. What John is doing here in this text, what I want you to really see and understand, he is doing Christology 101. Like, this is the basics. Like, you get this right... There's a lot that you can refute. And so what I want to do is I want to put a magnifying glass right over verse 2 because John rolls out three essential truths about Jesus that are incredibly important. So we're going to put them under the magnifying glass, look at them, and then I'm going to give you, after a bit, I'm going to give you four ways to make this really stick. So truth number one, I want you to see this in here. Truth number one is Jesus is Messiah. That's the big thing we got to understand. It's the first thing John says. He says, Everyone who believes or everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ, that word Christ, that's where we find this. Now, quick little theology for us. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, that's a very common assumption, and that's okay if you thought that. You don't have to feel bad. It makes sense because they follow each other. They're both capitalized. So like, you know, Brandon Marshall, Mike Hepler, Jesus, like it just sort of makes sense. But Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Okay, It's a Greek word that means anointed one, and it's built on a Hebrew word, Messiah. means anointed one. There's something special about Jesus. So three things I want to give you about this, and then we're going to move on. First thing that this title, Christ, means about Jesus, and why it's so important for us to get, John is saying that Jesus... This carpenter son turned rabbi is the complete and total fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. The entire Old Testament points to this person. It's a big claim. Second thing that this means about Jesus, when he says the term anointed one, Messiah, Christ, what that means is that there's something special about Jesus that is Not true of other leaders or other teachers, that he's going to do something, he's anointed for a purpose that's different from everybody else. And then the third thing I want to let you know about Christ, kind of putting those two things together, is that his life, by applying that title to his life, that his purpose will be for one thing, to make atonement for God's people. Okay, so that's what that term means. Jesus is Messiah. That's the first thing that we've got to get. Christology 101, Jesus is Messiah. Truth number two, that Jesus is God. That Jesus is God. When John says, he says, every spirit that confesses, Jesus Christ has come. Let's not speed right past that. Has come, like from Where? Was he, like, hanging out somewhere? Has come. What do you mean, has come? Like, in the same way that, like, I was born or you were born? Like, he, it's an odd word choice, John. Why would you say that? So I want you to imagine something with me. From the dawn of time, like, ever since the very, 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 very beginning, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was waiting in the wings of a stage. And the stage was busy over time, like rulers came and went, like these great movements swelled and swept across the stage. And then at the right time, the New Testament would use the phrase, the fullness of time. God the Father nudges God the Son out on stage, but he doesn't put him in the spotlight, does he? He puts him in an out-of-the-way corner of the world called Bethlehem. That's what he means here when he says, Jesus the Messiah has come. He's eternally coexistent. He's been there forever, eternity past. But he has come. The eternal God stepped in. That is mind boggling. Practically, here's why this is important. One of the first doctrines to fall into heresy is the subtle suggestion that Jesus isn't God. Okay? You need to watch for this. He's a good teacher. He's a good philosopher. Showed us how to love our neighbor, care for the meek and mild. All that's great, but he wasn't eternally God. This is Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. This is secularism and a parade of other bad Christologies that lead to bad theology. And John's saying, don't buy it. He has come. He is fully God. Don't doubt it. That's truth number two. He's Messiah. He's God. And then truth number three, He is fully human. He's fully human. Now, that's the phrase every spirit confesses, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, in John's day, there was this big rash of bad teaching that taught that Jesus was more like a spirit or like an illusion or like a ghost. And John's going, no, 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 no. Do you remember how he introduced Jesus in 1 John? That which we have seen, that which we have touched, which we've heard. Like he ate with Jesus and he saw him eat. He was at the cross and he saw him bleed. Like Jesus was a real flesh and blood person. Here's why this is important. If you're taking notes, you can write this quick reference down. This is Hebrews chapter 2. Here's why this is important. It's not just that it's a nice thought that Jesus came and died. There's a lot more to it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says this Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation that's the turning away of the wrath of God for sins. Now, here's the kicker for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How does it change your view of God to know that Jesus knows exactly how you feel when temptation is about to take you down? Think about that. You have a God who gets you. I know that sounds really pop and almost irreverent, but that's what Jesus' incarnation, being fully human, is really about. And when you feel lost, he knows what that feels like. When you feel unloved, he knows what that feels like. When you feel abandoned by those you love, as Jesus was, even by his Father for that brief moment in time on the cross. You're not merely there to meet a distant deity. You are meeting with a sincere Savior who gets you. That just changes your perception of God. Here's the point. What John means when he says he has come in the flesh is that when the eternally coexistent second person of the Trinity, this co creating Son of God, stepped into creation, he did so that by entering our mess, he could conquer our mess. <laughs> so that by having victory over sin, he could get you through sin. That by becoming man, he could change man. And that is massive theology, and it's bound up in that one little phrase in the flesh. Now, John holds all three of those truths up. Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is God, and Jesus is human. And he says, this, this is the litmus test, Christology 101. This is what we have to get right. If you want your out-of-focus world to see Jesus clearly, focus on these three truths and what they mean. What does it mean to you? that you had to have your sins forgiven by a perfect Messiah. Is that important to you? Yeah. Is it important to you that salvation is from the Lord and so God provided God for us? Is it important to you that you have a king who sympathizes and empathizes with temptation and the weight of humanity and yet did not give in? That's really important. So, practically, what do we do with this? Are we all supposed to become deep-thinking, beard-scratching theologians? Maybe. (laughs) Probably not, though. So what I want to do in the next 10 minutes or so is I want to give you four ways to see Jesus clearly. Okay, we're going to take these three truths, four ways to see Jesus clearly. And these are, like, just simple ways that you can build familiarity with Jesus. They're things that were practiced by the early church, and you could transplant them into any culture. They're not just here. They're not just pop. This isn't something that's brand new. This is old stuff. First, read the Gospels. (laughs) Read the Gospels. Alistair Begg, who is one of my favorite preachers, I'll be honest, I just kind of wish I had the Scottish brogue, okay? If you know Alistair Begg, he's a Scotsman, and I just wish I sounded that way. He could read the phone book, and I'd be like, yeah, I'm nourished by that. So, um... He puts it this way, get this, this is just brilliant. He says, we find Christ in all of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. It's like the best Cliff Notes ever. I'll say it again in case you want to write it down and then give him the credit. In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the epistles, he is explained, and in Revelation, he is expected. So here's why this is so important. Guys, we are called Christians. That means we know Jesus. We build our lives after him, and we do what he does. That sounds insultingly basic, but here's what John wants us to get. Over and over and over again throughout this letter, John has been saying the same thing. The Christian life boils down to one idea. How much does your life show how much you love and know Jesus? Does it? Like, are you loving? If not, you may not know Jesus. Did you read the Gospels? Do you see what he does? So read the Gospels. 2,000 years later, my word for us is this. If I want to understand the high-definition, ultra-4K picture of who Jesus is, I want to focus my attention on where he is finally and fully revealed. Read the Gospels. There you get an up-close-and-personal front-row seat to who he is, what he cares about, how he treats people, what he teaches about, what bothers him, what my response should be to him. I don't think we understand how much of a privilege that is. No other religion has that. (laughs) This is where we learn what the real check looks like. We study the real thing to determine the false thing. So if you're looking for a place to start, let me get just insanely practical for you. Start with the gospel of Mark. You could read the gospel of Mark in about an hour and a half, just start to finish. And it's a narrative, so it's meant to be read like that. Just hour and a half. Matthew's probably going to take you about two hours. Luke and John, probably about two and a half hours, a little longer. Right? That's not that hard. But for the, sake, or for the time that it takes me to watch a movie, I could read the Gospels. Crazy. We don't, we don't even think about it right that. So here's my goal for you, just to throw this out there. Make it a goal to read the Gospels once a month. Not that hard. Fighting for the time for it, that's where it gets hard, isn't it? <laughs> so that's number one. Number two. Use Jesus' name. Use Jesus' name. Again, this sounds really basic, but here's what I mean. Most of us are over-experienced in explaining Jesus, and we are underexperienced in introducing Jesus. It sounds really catchy. What do I mean? Mandy and I have been married for 17 years. And over the 17 years, we've learned a lot about each other. She's seen me at my best, and she's seen me at my worst. And I've seen her at her best and I've seen her at her worst. And if you just came up to me and you didn't know Mandy and just like point blank, open-ended said, tell me about Mandy. I'm not going to give you her credit score, bank account information, social security number, any of that stuff. What, why? What I'm going to tell you about is how 17 years of being married to this amazing person has made me into a different person. How who she is is influencing the man that I am becoming. What's the point? Isolated facts about Christianity are poor substitutes for a relationship with Christ. Isolated facts about Christianity, or even like your best theology, isolated facts about Christianity are poor substitutes for a relationship with Christ. Jesus is a real person who makes a real difference in the lives of real sinners. And so if you want to make much of Jesus every day to everyone, please hear me on this, North Canton Chapel. People want to know if Jesus is making a difference in your life or you're just going to church. Have you experienced, like, the peace that comes when your world is falling apart and you're like, why do I feel okay? (laughs) Have you had to confront the death of a loved one and you find yourself hoping in heaven? If you find if you found, had this experience seriously of him, of him getting you through something you didn't think you could get through, and people look at you and they go, well, "Why are you so hopeful? <laughs> what is that?" Because Jesus. That's simple. People look at you and go, "Hey, man, like they hit you, how come you didn't hit back?" Because Jesus. Your life is not all about yourself. Why? Because Jesus. <laughs> Here's the thing, and I want you to get this and hear this from my heart. You are not a professional marketer for your church. You are a personal disciple of Jesus. And so what that means is you just talk about what he's doing in your life. One of the most clarifying words that you can give in an out-of-focus world just starts with, because Jesus. That's tip number two. Number three, narrow your focus to deepen your impact. Narrow your focus to deepen your impact. Here's what this means. Chip and Joanna Gaines do not write mystery novels. Tom Clancy, not Dan, Tom, Tom does not write cookbooks. You will be known for one thing. You cannot be an expert at everything. Your life will be built around one idea, and a Christian is someone who says, I'm putting all my chips on Jesus. I want to be known by what he has done in my life. This is going to be the subtitle of my life. I'm going to narrow my focus. I'm going to be about one thing. I'm going to be an expert in one thing so that I can have a very deep impact. I think this is so critical in our world today. This is Paul to the church in Corinth where he said, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your faith may not rest on the strength of men but on the wisdom of God. What's he saying? There's a lot of stuff out there you could choose to care about. And Paul goes, I want to care about one thing. Jesus and him crucified, period. Narrow your focus to deepen your impact. There is such a thing as healthy apathy for the sake of gospel clarity. Sometimes. You've heard me talk this way a lot over the last year, but I really do believe that the reason why so many, the souls of so many Christians are so wrenched right now is because we've bought into this lie that I have to have a Loctite tight fully formed opinion about absolutely everything. Guys, that is too much weight for your soul to bear. Pay attention to your soul. It is crushing you. You were not created to be an expert at everything. You were created to be an expert in one thing, Jesus. My word to you as your pastor, and just please hear my heart on this. Like, I really don't care about what you believe about most of the things that populate the headlines. I really don't. I care very deeply about what you think about Jesus. Because most of those other things, they're going to get blown away like dandelion tufts in the wind. But Jesus lasts. And if you chase them, you will end up exhausted, frustrated, and bitter when they don't bring the peace that you thought they were going to bring you. So don't chase them, don't even bother. All right. <laughs> this is pretty personal for me. Really, like, there's something that happens when you turn 40. I don't know what happens. Like, I just realized, like, you know, I'm about halfway there. Yeesh. So why waste the rest of it on what doesn't last? Like, I don't want to be known by what I think. I want to be known by what Christ has done. And I don't want my speculation to eclipse my story. I don't want my opinion to be louder than my transformation. So, number four. Number four. Talk about what Jesus is doing. Talk about what Jesus is doing. I get together with people at North Kent Chapel a lot, and maybe you do too. It's Starbucks, it's our living room, and these days it's even Zoom meetings. And um, one of my favorite questions to ask, if you're ever doing a face-to-face, is like, just tell me what Jesus is doing in your life. It's this wide open, anything goes, like you name it kind of question. Just tell me what he's doing in your life. And there's so many other potential topics to talk about, but when you talk about what Jesus is doing in your life, gospel gets real. And you can say, oh, man, let me tell you what he's doing. (laughs) But here's the thing I've noticed. You can't fake that, can you? Not for very long, especially not in community. It's why a lot of groups fizzle and fade, because Jesus moved from the focus to the footnote. Don't let that happen. Talk about what Jesus is doing in your life. It's the most satisfying thing that you can do. I love preaching. I love it. I love gathering in this room, and I love singing together. I love praying together. But the real stuff of the Christian life is what happens out there, how we talk about Jesus out there. This is a training ground where you go impact your world because that is where spiritual truth is needed, and you have it. So go talk about him. Practically, here's what this means uh, for us, and I want to encourage you with this. Fall, like autumn, right, is a major momentum builder in the lives of most of us. Like the kids are back in school, families get back in rhythm, and these structures that have been absent over the summer sort of come back. Um, I have a friend who says that September is January part two. And so here's what this means for you. Commit this fall. (laughs) I'm sorry to talk about fall. Commit this fall to making choices that really last and count. Here's what I mean. Like get in places with people where you can talk about what Jesus is doing in your life. Rooted is coming back, September 19th. Financial Peace University, also September 19th. We've got new community groups that are launching all over North Canton. Be there. These aren't opportunities to be in, in busy and involved in church, because busyness is not a spiritual fruit. These are places where you can get in contact with other believers and just talk about what Jesus is doing in your life. So if any of that's interesting to you, just keep your eyes peeled for what we're doing. Um, I'll tell you Lori Simonides, who's our group life director, she's hosting a, a group life Q&A for most of us. It is for me, right? And I, like, I talk for a living. But I want you to go to that, group life Q&A. If you're curious about how do I join a what is a community group, how do I sign up for these things called rooted and financial, what is all that? If that's at all interesting to you and you want to take the next step here at North Canton Chapel, please be attuned to that. Not so you can be busy. But it's just so that you can give an out-of-focus world a clear picture of Jesus. Ways to write a bunch of hymns, a lot of songs that I know you'll recognize. The one we're going to sing is called Blessed Assurance. And here's what I want you to pay attention to when we sing this song. Pay attention to how often the verb sight or the image of sight is used as in the words of this song. It's really important. Somebody asked Fanny Crosby once. said, um, aren't you mad? that your sight was taken away from you and you've lived your whole life blind? And she says, no. She says, because the first face that I see when I get to heaven will be. So as we sing this song together, I do want you to stand. I know a lot of you know it. Just pay attention to that because I do desperately or I deeply believe that our out-of-focus world deserves a very clear picture of Jesus. And so let's stand if we can and sing together.
0: Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.